This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Today we're speaking with Wharton Management Professor Samir Nurmohamed, and the topic is overcoming negative reactions to radical creativity. We're going to talk about eating insects along the way as well. Uh, so thanks for joining us, Samir. Thank you so much for having me. So the title of the paper is um, Hearing Crickets, an Inductive Study of Overcoming Negative Reactions to Radical Creativity. So can you give us a quick overview of what the research was about? Yeah, so this is actually some cool new research that I've been doing with my colleague, Spencer Harrison, who's at Boston College as an expert on creativity as well. Um, and what we were really interested in was the idea that, you know, when creative products are introduced and creative ideas are are introduced, how do people gain traction for them? So if we think about some ideas, some are extremely novel and extremely different from prevailing habits in society. And we don't have much of an understanding of how these ideas gain traction and why some do versus others don't. So what we thought would be interesting was to look at this in an emerging market, such as the edible insects industry here in the United States and other Western countries, and seeing this industry called entomophagy and seeing what companies and entrepreneurs are using to basically gain traction for these new products and new types of food that they have. Often when you think about the ideas of, ins- of eating insects, you probably think, ugh, disgusting. Well, we were interested in, well, how are these companies and entrepreneurs actually trying to get consumers and customers to try their products? Because they do offer a number of health benefits, but of course, they provoke this reaction of disgust. So what we tried to do was look at these companies and see what types of tactics they're using, not to just come up with their ideas, but also to sell these ideas to the public. And what we've come up with are a number of tactics that companies and entrepreneurs are using to kind of what we call tune down the novelty of their ideas. So often when we think about creative products and creativity, we think you need to be as out there in the world as possible to really wildly depart from existing norms. But what we actually find is that you actually want to tone down or tune back your radical ideas. You want to make them less novel. And what these entrepreneurs are doing are some of these strategies to sell these issues and these ideas to customers. So what they'll do is they'll actually... Um, come up with vocabulary so that these new products sound much more familiar to us. Similarly, they'll put them in forms so that they look just like a chocolate bar or a cookie, um, but they actually contain insects. So we come up with a wide variety of tactics that entrepreneurs are using to convince consumers to try their products. And so what were some of the key takeaways of the study? Yeah, so this, this big idea of kind of tuning back and tuning down the novelty of your ideas was, was a big one. So there's been some prior research looking at, for instance, Thomas Edison. And what they found in that research with Thomas Edison is that he had better designs for disseminating electricity. But what he actually did was use, use existing designs and existing infrastructure to his advantage. So similarly here, what we found is people are, you know, for instance, they're scaling back their ideas by putting them in these familiar forms or using vocabulary that's familiar to us. So instead of calling them, you know, uh, crickets or waxworms, they'll say that this tastes like, you know, this type of pistachio, or this tastes like uh, desert shrimp, Um, kind of these things that are somewhat familiar to us, but also are kind of provoking a sense of curiosity to get people to try these products. And I think this is really important for businesses because a lot of 
investment is spent on coming up with the design itself or coming up with the product itself rather than trying to think about, okay, well, how can we, how can we get the mainstream public? How can we get our customers to really buy into these ideas that seem quite novel on the surface? Right. Did any of these strategies really surprise you? Yeah, I think there were, there were a couple that really were, were aha strategies for me. So if I, if I think about one of them was kind of managing the surplus of ideas that you have. That's what we call it in the paper. Um, so if you think about, you know, the people working for you, your employees, oftentimes you have to say, well, you know what, Joe, that idea is just way too out there right now. And we assume that companies shelve those ideas. What we found in this context was is that actually they're not shelving the ideas. They're actually using those ideas for the future. They're actually trying to work towards some of those ideas that are too extreme right now. And they're saying, okay, you know what? We're going to put this idea on the back burner for now. But they're using it as a way to get employees to be motivated for the future. So instead of just putting it on the back burner, they're saying, okay, well, if we imagine a future maybe five years from now where that product will be important and an everyday thing, can, what, would, what do we need to do today to get there? Great. And so if you had to advise a company that was introducing a really sort of novel product based on your research, what kinds of practical advice would you give them? Yeah, I think one of the big things for us was looking at, you know, when we think about creativity, we assume that a lot of it's being done inside the organization. What was really took us by surprise was just how much companies are really using the public to, to navigate whether this is an interesting idea or not or whether it will be an idea that gains traction. But not just that. What's happening is some of their customers, some of these clients that are outside of their organizations, are actually the ones that are promoting it and using it in really interesting ways. So, for instance, um, you know, one, one thing that we came across in our interviews is how they're using this, this flour, this cricket flour, as a way of making waffles or pancakes. And that was something that you know, maybe the companies thought would happen at some point in time, but it's really being left up to the customer to kind of come up with recipes and sharing those ideas online. And then using that to kind of promote your product is really helpful. Similarly, we found that entrepreneurs are really using the media to, to see what's going to gain traction versus not. So they might think that, you know, an idea is too extreme right now, but they'll kind of still pitch it to the media and the media will cover it. And then kind of based on customer reactions to it, they'll decide whether they want to produce it or not. Okay. What kinds of misperceptions do you think your uh, research dispels? Yeah, so I think one of the big misperceptions um, of of this of some of this research is, is that, and Paul Rosen here at Penn has done some interesting work on this, but it's this idea that, of course, when we see something disgust, disgusting, we're very much revolted by it. And I think that's still very much generally the case when I say, do you want to try, you know, this set of crickets here in my hand? You'd probably see, no, that sounds really, really gross. Um, but one of the things that we saw is that you know, entrepreneurs are trying to use some of these ne- negative emotions and trying to harness them into more positive emotions or cognitions. So this idea of, okay, well, I have this set of insects or this set of crickets in my hand, but they actually look like cookies or they actually look like chips, which are very familiar to us. It almost provokes this sense of surprise or curiosity. So what we're seeing is entrepreneurs are playing a much more active role in shaping reactions to how people respond to their ideas. And they're doing that through the designs that they're using for putting their products in. They're also doing it in terms of how they're pitching in. They're also using you know, the people around the customer or the people around the audience to really gain traction. So for instance, you know, we observed w- with these, with these uh, entrepreneurs, they'd, you know, if they asked a parent to try you know, one of these edible insects, 
the parents would be really, you know, uninterested in doing it. But of course, their kids would be super interested. And by seeing their kids do that, that would take their parents back to a time in which, you know, eating dirt was actually okay. So again, it's kind of channeling these negative emotions into something that's more like surprise or something that's into curiosity and saying, okay, well, if, you know, if my, if my son or daughter can do it, I can kind of try it too. Right, right. And how does your research sort of stand apart from other research in this field? Yeah, I think one of the big, the big things for us is, was really trying to find a context where, you know, radical creativity is taking shape. I think one of the things that we see in existing research is that we either look at creativity in the lab or we look at more incremental innovation. We don't see many, you know, ideas in our, in our lifetimes, actually, that really change the course of things for, for people. So if you think about the edible insects industry, that's really trying to not just change, you know, food itself, but it's trying to change eating habits around the world. Um, and that's something that's, you know, it's seen as something that's very off-putting to people, but these entrepreneurs are trying to change it. So what we were trying to do in this research was really go to a context where we'd see the phenomenon in action. Um, and whereas, you know, some of the prior work on radical creativity or radical innovation has really looked at things in hindsight and evaluating the practices, we're actually seeing these entrepreneurs as they happen and as, they, as new businesses emerge. So even over the course of our study, we had to keep trying to update our lists of people to interview because there were so many new uh, companies. And we got to see companies that were not only well-established and having you know, great sales records, but we also saw c- companies that were just starting to get Kickstarter donations and that were really in that idea generation phase. So that really opened up all lines of the, the supply chain, but also the creative process to us, which was really, really interesting and cool as a researcher. Now, now I'm thinking it won't be too long before the Girl Scouts introduce their new cricket cookies. <laughs> That's right. Um, but what is it that you want to look at next? Yeah, so I think the, for me, you know, a, a, big, a big curiosity of mine in terms of research is looking at, you know, when individuals or organizations are constrained in some way. So whether that's in terms of resources or talent or, you know, in this situation, they're constrained in terms of what they're trying to do in terms of their products. They have a limited set of resources and they're trying to make things better for the world. Um, so that's something that generally interests me. So I want to kind of keep pursuing this research related to creativity, but also kind of take it back to, you know, our, our employees and, and that, you know, the positions that our students will take here at Warden and thinking about, okay, well, how can we apply some of these insights to them? How can they gain uh, traction for their ideas when they're facing adversity? Great. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Samir. Thanks for having me. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.